0: Greetings, church. It's good to be with you for an online service. Uh, it's Father's Day this weekend, so to all you dads out there, I greet and salute you. I, too, am a father, uh, so you may feel free to say nice things about me right now. I'll pause. Okay, good. Um Hey, listen, we are praying together as a church that coronavirus would continue to recede, that the uh, regulations would be re- just lowered and downgraded so that we could all be together. It was absolutely wonderful to have a, a good chunk of the church back in the building last week. Can we join us in prayer that-, that God would just heal this virus, that it would go away? I think we can be unified in that. Amen. I look forward to being back fully with the church. And in the meantime, let's stand up. Let's praise the Lord together. He has done great things. Let us honor him accordingly. Change. This whole world
1: team. Well, welcome to ABF. We are so glad that you are joining us for our online service. Whether you are at home in the living room or you're at the beach, we are glad you're with us. And man, we just miss you and we hope we will see you again soon. Hey, if you are interested in coming to one of our Sunday services, just go online and make sure you reserve a spot so that you can join us on a Sunday morning. Well, hey, we love hearing from you. So if there's any way we can connect with you through prayer or if you have, you know, any concerns, we'd love to hear from you. And you can text us at 97000 and just let us know what's going on and how we can support you. Our staff team and elders, we love to be able to pray for you. Well, I am super excited for our women's courtyard gathering. We have one of those coming up this coming Monday at 6.30 p.m., and that's on our campus at ABF. This is going to be a great time, a casual time of Bible study and just connecting with one another. So I hope all you women, we see you on Monday night. Well, we've got some ABF Summer Fun Days happening, and you can check our website for the calendar of what's coming up, but we've got one on the calendar for June 27th. We are meeting at Zuma Beach between Lifeguard Stand 12 and 13, so see you that day as well. Well, our student ministries, we are back in person on campus. Our high school ministry is meeting on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. And our junior high ministry, our summer time is 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. So we are excited to be back in person with all those student ministries. Well, hey, kids, don't forget. We are sending out our Bible videos every week, so we hope you are connecting and watching those with your families. This is a great way for you to continually grow in your love for the Lord. If you can't be here on campus, we wanna make sure that you have the resources to continue to grow in your faith at home. Well, I am so proud of all of our kids. They worked so hard to create this awesome Father's Day video. So I hope you will enjoy all these tributes and our bad dad jokes. Happy Father's Day.
2: The top five things we love about our dad are, he plays with us, he works hard, he's funny, he's really good at building things, and he protects us. Oh, hi!
0: I'm trying to be like my daddy. He's does surgery, and let me tell you how he is is awesome. He fixes people on their bones, and he is funny, and he gives the best, best hugs.
2: What do you love about daddy?
0: I love daddy. He tickles me so much that I have to pee. And sometimes I have accidents. <laughs> I love my dad because he loves me and he plays sports with me he's kind and nice and wonderful i just really love him so much he's just a real kind person happy father's day dad my favorite things about dad is when i play hockey with him and when he plays outside with me and and when he when he
2: plays games
0: with me I it with him, and I play outside with him, and I play fairies
2: with him. Oh, you like
0: fairies? Okay, now. I love my dad because he makes good dumplings. I love my dad because he does everything for me. I love my dad because he brings me places. Like where? The beach. Oh, hey. Didn't see you there. I like looking at Corvettes
2: just like my dad. I love him. But seriously, I love my dad because he's a hard worker and he shares the gospel.
0: I love my dad because we go on bike rides together. I love my dad because he spends time with me and he takes care of us. My favorite thing about my dad is how he's always helping me get better at sports and he's always playing with me. One of the things that makes my dad awesome Sally lets us watch movies, that
2: my mom will let us watch. I like my dad because he tells good stories. I like my dad because he to me. I like my dad because he takes me fishing. I like my dad because he takes me camping.
0: I like how my dad always wants to spend time with me. I like that my dad takes me out to play soccer. I like that my dad is funny and he loves sports. Hey, did you know that french fries weren't made in France? No, no they, they were, were made, made in Greece. Greece!
2: What kind of bagel can fly?
0: A plain bagel. Sting. Why don't eggs tell jokes? Because they'd crack each other up. Here's, Here's a dad joke. joke! Did you know
2: that? They're building a new cheese industry in Israel? Do you know what they're calling it? Jesus of Nazareth. What do you call a deer
0: with no eyes? I don't know. No idea. (laughs) What do you call a deer with no legs and no eyes? I don't know. Mm. Still no idea. (laughs) That's a real name, Slapper.
2: Ah, uh, so fun uh, for us to see some of the tributes to dads, and uh, just from me to uh, your home and wherever you're watching this. Want to extend a a happy Father's Day, and uh, so cool just to see like through the perspective of a, of a kid. A kid's heart uh, is beautiful. Even the dad jokes that we put up with. One of my favorite kids' story. We'll start with that out of the gates. One of my absolute favorite kids' story is a friend of mine. His name's Chet. He's also a pastor, and he was telling our family this story, and I just was dying about it. He had a just a beautiful little daughter. She was five or six years old and tells the story of being at a dinner party. I think I've even told this at some other point as a church, but at this dinner party, uh, his daughter had, uh, they had set up around the house. They'd set up little bowls with peanut M&Ms in them. It's just kind of snacks for people that are Uh, eating and just enjoying their time together. And uh, one of the times in the evening, one of the guests needed to pull away to make a personal phone call or to receive a call. So stepped into one of the side rooms. And when he went in the side room, he saw this sweet little blonde girl sitting in the corner with a bowl of peanut M&Ms and she is like double fisting them as just pounding them as fast as she can. She sees that the man comes into the room. She looks up at him with complete seriousness and says, mister, turn around and forget what you saw here. Turn around and forget what you saw here. It just cracks me up. Just picturing this little girl just so intent and making sure that what was discovered was never exposed to others. And truth be told, each of us, if we're honest, have part of our lives that we wouldn't have other wouldn't mind having others turn around and forget what they saw. You know, each one of us have moments of impulse, moments of weakness, moments of immaturity decisions that we know in our heart of heart have either offended God or both offended God and offended those we love. The amazing news is in today's section of scripture is that this isn't just a wish of a five-year-old girl. This is the reality that we have the judge of the universe that's provided a way to have our sins passed over. Sin leaving us blameless before a perfect God. Our text foreshadows that reality. Last week, if you remember, we were in the middle of God demonstrating his immense power before a defiant nation and a defiant king. You notice I say defi- defiant nation because it's not just the king or the Pharaoh that's resisting God. You're not hearing any word or news of a, of a people that's eventually turning to God. No revival meetings or no changes of heart that's evident from the view that we see in Scripture. But if you think about it, the the plagues have been demonstrating to them who God is, that they do give an account to a perfect God, that they are responsible for their actions. I think they demonstrate God saying this simple statement, I am real and this is serious. I am real and this is serious. Let me pray before we explore, explore this next section of scripture. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this chance to be together and to study a bit of who you are through this story of Exodus. We ask that you would teach us through this so you'd open our eyes, that we have a broader view of the expanse of your character, of your love, your mercy, but also your justice. God, we cry for that. We ask now that you teach us through the study of your word that we'd be free of distractions. We'd really be able to enter in, in these moments. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, we pick up this week in chapter nine, if you wouldn't mind turning me with turning with me in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at starting off with the sixth plague. We already covered the first five of those. I figured we wouldn't try to do all of them in one week, spread it out a little bit because it gets fairly intense. But if you'll turn with me to chapter nine, verse eight, and this is now the sixth plague and it's introducing to boils as part of the plague, verses Eight through twelve, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. We'll stop there for a little explanation. The first thing that may have caught your attention is Moses is directed to take handfuls of soot from the kiln. Now, what is a kiln? A kiln in that day would have been a a heating chamber used to make bricks. So this was what the Israelites, if you remember, were forced to do, just making bricks for more and more building and more and more advancement of uh, of their building campaigns, if you will. But nobody that was watching this play itself out wondered what God was pointing to, the significance of this act, taking from the kiln and directly throwing it into the air. It's God directly confronting their sin of slavery and abuse. None were innocent in the land. Moses throws the dust in the air and what does it say happens? It ends up turning into boils on the entire people group. Can you imagine what that would have been like after all they've already been through? Now you add this into the mix. I made the mistake earlier in the year of watching this TV show called uh, Dr. Pimple Popper. I don't recommend it. I don't encourage it. I don't even condone it. But here's the the idea in that is showing just people with all kinds of just miserable skin conditions. And upon watching it, at first I was grossed out but then after a while, you kind of get past that and you start moving towards just, just feeling bad for people when their skin's a wreck and you're like, what, what's coming out? You're like, it's, it's unbelievable. I was thinking about that, as it relates to what does God have to do to get somebody's attention? Like, what does he have to do to, to shake them up, to help them realize that he exists and he's serious and that he holds them accountable for their actions? that it doesn't go without notice. Still the same question that I have in our present culture. How does the world around us look and see the expanse of God's creation? I was driving home just the other night, and I don't know if maybe you had this. I forget what night of the week it was, but there was a, just a, a, a sunset that was just epic. It just screamed of the glory of God. It was as if he had taken a paintbrush across the sky even with all of these displays of God's unbelievable power, still there's no bending of a knee. There's no acknowledging what is wrong. Next comes a pretty intense plague. This one's a little different than others. Something interesting happens in here, the seventh plague. God actually starts to give them a warning of what's to come so that they have the opportunity to respond to his voice or not respond. Take a look at me a little bit later in the chapter, chapter nine, verse 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention, catch that word, to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Well, that's how it starts. God gives the warning and you see there that some Egyptians started believing what God said. They started responding. It says that they they took their their animals and their, their workers out of the fields. This tells us that the message that was going to Pharaoh was also breaking into the entire land. Sometimes you can start thinking, oh, well, the Egyptian people, they were innocent. They maybe didn't even hear what was happening in the courtyard of the king. But just the opposite here, they had a choice to respond or not respond to the warning of God. This was a direct demonstration of God's authority over the storm gods. I'm sure they're calling out to these false gods that didn't do a thing As Pharaoh starts to watch this play out and literally seeing his entire land just destroyed by hail, look in verse 28, how he responds. So then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, "'This time I have sinned. "'The Lord is in the right "'and I and my people are in the wrong. "'Plead with the Lord "'for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. "'I will let you go.'" and you shall stay no longer. Whoa, this is kind of an interesting couple of verses there. When you, when you read that, you're like, what in the world, is this a, a turning point for Pharaoh? Is he finally repenting of his sin? Look just a couple of verse later in Moses' response. Moses in verse 30 says, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. In other words, Moses saw right through this. This was a false conversion of of sort, and that still happens today where there's a moment of emotion where someone calls out to God, but then they go right back to their old sinful ways. There's no change of life. There's no demonstration that what they had claimed is actually taken root. It's a really sad uh, point here where external repentance doesn't translate into changed uh, actions just trying to avoid further consequences. So after the reprieve, we see that Moses was exactly right. God had mercy and pulled away the hail. In verse 34, it says, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So Moses was right. It's interesting though, to maybe catch some of the the verbiage here. Other places in the, the account of the Exodus, you see where it's mentioned that the Lord hardened his heart. Here in verse 34 though, we see that he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. So there's a a, a sense of of personal responsibility. He made the choice himself. It wasn't all God's leading. God was just working through his rebellious heart. So his personal responsibility leads then to this next plague, which again gets kind of crazy, locusts covering the entire land. I don't know if you've been tracking the news a little bit in East Africa, the expanse of the amount of just literally billions of locusts that are just destroying land right now. Now imagine there where the conclusion after the plague, it says, not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Nothing was left. Literally nothing. It's a one of those one of those plagues that's so destructive, both disgusting and destructive. Think about that. You must be saying, if you're God, what in the world do I have to do to get their attention? I imagine the the Israelites even murmuring to each other like what's what's God got to do to to get a hold of these people?' The next plague comes pretty intense. At first I thought about this and it seemed like it wasn't that big of a deal, but the next plague was darkness where God puts darkness over the entire land for three days straight. What do you think the symbolism there might be attached to as it relates to the gospel story? Three days of complete darkness. And in this picture at first, I was like, well, that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. But if you've ever been in a scenario where everything is just pitch black, imagine that for three days where all you're doing is stumbling around the rubble of everything else that's been destroyed. The hail, the locusts, people still putting stuffed cream probably on wounds that are still healing from the the boils. All of this in pitch black. Again, demonstrating God's power, most likely this one, direct opposition to the sun god, which was a, a very popular god in the day of the pharaoh. Do you think God, though, had their attention yet? What, what does he have to do? What more does he have to, uh, what uh, extension of power will actually get their attention? In chapter 11, we see another warning prior to the plague, kind of like he had done with the hail, only this one's a little bit more intense. This one's almost a, a Genesis-type moment before the final plague, where Moses explains that every firstborn in Egypt would be killed if they do not let the Israelites free from the bondage of slavery. God clearly warns them that obedience will lead to life and disobedience will lead to death. That's a a, a choice that they were left to make. Really, if you think about it, anybody that parents a child understands this, that there's gotta be a a little bit of a, a tug of war between sometimes extending grace, sometimes consequence, and that's how you get the attention of your child. I remember when my kids were quite young, my daughter Alexa Man, I don't even know her exact age, but I remember one time she had done something. Uh, she was real little. Well, she had done something. And I was like, listen, Lexi, if you do that again, uh, do, do you need to get a, a spanking? What, what do we need to do here? And out of the other room, my son, who was just a couple years uh, older, I hear him yelling from the, the living room. He's probably six. He's yelling, give her grace, dad, give her grace. And my daughter, Alexa, didn't exactly know what that was. So, so she started panicking. Whatever her brother was wishing on her, no grace, daddy, don't give me grace. I don't want any of that. It's just a, a beautiful moment where I actually did give grace. I probably give more than I should. But uh, the grace that was extended there, sometimes though, you need a balance of both. Where God, where he's trying to get their attention, where he's trying to uh, point out, he wants them to realize that man, this is serious. This is serious. There's gonna be consequences. He gives very specific instructions, instructions for the Jewish people to obey, to allow them to avoid the consequence of the death of the firstborn. The thing that's interesting is that this was a, an opportunity, like it was with uh, the with, uh, uh, hail, it was an opportunity for either people group to embrace rescue. Whether you're Egyptian or whether you're an Israelite, you had the potential to follow God's instructions. The instructions were very specific. They involved taking a spotless lamb, and putting its blood on the doorposts so that when the angel of death finally came and visited, that, the, that the, their house or their lodging would be passed over. That's where we get the term, the Passover. It was a, a demonstration of faith that people needed to extend where they had to be obedient. You see, obedient faith is genuine faith. Real faith actually changes somebody. That's the entire book of James explains the connection between faith and works. They're married, you can't separate them two. But like Adam and Eve, they had free will to respond. How they wanted to to respond to this opportunity slash potential for disaster. God offered both grace to Egyptians and he offered consequence. One or the other, they had to choose would they take it? The Israelites, as we'll see, ended up obeying and doing exactly what was commanded. Look, though, in chapter 12 to see how the result, how it plays out. It says, "'At midnight the Lord struck down "'all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, "'from the firstborn of Pharaoh, "'who sat on his throne, "'to the firstborn of the captive, "'who was in the dungeon.'" And all the firstborn of the livestock and Pharaoh rose up in the night and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not not a house where someone was not dead. Listen to that statement. It gives you, it's not a a sensational display here. It's just giving you the, the bare facts. God kept his word and extended the consequence that he had told them was going to happen. And you notice here that it doesn't seem, based on the verbiage, it doesn't seem like any Egyptians responded for the potential to repent and turn and and trust in God's word. Instead, it says that every single house found someone dead in it. Now, this leaves us with a little bit of a, a tough section of scripture, to be honest. Let's be real here. This leaves us with a question. This is a, mor- a moral question. How is God justified taking the lives of the firstborn? Although he owes us no explanation, his actions are explainable. It wasn't, it wasn't as if he hadn't already made a case for his existence. It isn't as if he had already, hadn't already given them warning and then demonstrated that what he warned them about was going to exactly happen the way he described it. Nine different times they were warned about what was to come. At what point does God is God then justified to extend a penalty? Here's the thing, is that our God would be justified in taking the lives of all people that have willfully rejected his leadership. As a just God, that would be within the the realm of of his ability. But it's only by his grace that some are rescued. The slaying of the firstborn just showed the gravity of our sin and the penalty that is owed. It reminds us that this is not a game. This is not a game. Our, Our sin is a stench before a perfect God. So here... the provision was provided. The opportunity for rescue was there, but then they were left with a choice as to how they would respond. Now for us, sometimes you're like, oh, I just don't like that version of God. But the more you reflect upon it, the more you dig in and think about it, we all cry for justice. We all cry for, these people had been enslaved for 400 years. We would be crying for justice. We're crying for justice in the streets present day because there's something as we've talked about in this series that God's imprinted on our heart that desires that. When we don't feel like it's happening, man, we just want it all the more. So God demonstrates his justice He's ex- he exposes the Pharaoh himself who claimed to be God. This would have been a, really a disaster for the Pharaoh, one losing his firstborn, but then also being the, having his lack of uh, deity, if you will, exposed. He had, he had thought of himself as a God. He was known as the son of Ra, which was the God that they believed in. So he himself all of a sudden left in this moment of helplessness, would have been exposed finally maybe for the first time in his life to his own humanity, that he wasn't a God, that he had to bow before Almighty God. Remember, God opposes and objects misdirected worship, and that's exactly what he did in this circumstance. Think about the parallels of this story for us present day. There's so many. I could teach a whole sermon just on that. But you think about it, the option to have our sins passed over, moving from slavery to freedom. See, the truth is every single one of us is born into slavery. Slavery to sin. John 8.34 says everyone who practices sin, that's all of us, is a slave to sin. Here's the problem with spiritual slavery is it's not something that you can necessarily see. We're often blinded to it. We look at our circumstances. We look at our life. We look at our self in the mirror. There's nothing that appears to look as if you're enslaved, but scripture tells us just the opposite, but trying to tell the world that they're enslaved to sin is like trying to sell ice to an Eskimo. I use that expression because it's Father's Day and my dad used to always say that. Someday though, the final plague, if you think about this, the final plague, the plague of death, eternity, that's coming for every single one of us. The death rate is still at a hundred percent, but eternal death, as we saw there, can be avoided, not through the sacrifice of a, a physical lamb any longer. We have the good news of the gospel message, which is actually that. That the Lamb of God, that the Lamb of God was, was, was given on our behalf. I love when John the Baptist finally sees Jesus coming. What does he say about him? He says in John 1 behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 refers to Christ as our Passover. You see, our sin, our mistakes demanded a penalty to be paid. It demanded it. That's the, what God has established all the way back thousands of years. It demanded a perfect sacrifice. And through simple faith in Jesus Christ, life-changing faith, I shouldn't say simple faith, life-changing faith in Jesus Christ, that changes everything. That changes, that's God's desire, that we would have our sins passed over because of the finished work of the perfect Lamb of God. You see, through this entire story, we've been getting a glimpse of Pharaoh's heart. What does it always say? His heart was hard, his heart was hard. It, it was hardened. it got hard. And then he responded to this in a hardness of heart. But in Ezekiel thirty three eleven, I love we see a glimpse of God's heart. He says this, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's God's desire in all of this. He, he provides the, the way out, he provides the rescue, and it's the opportunity for us to actually live out what that sweet little girl had asked for. Oh, just just turn around, mister, and forget what you saw here. Can you imagine before the judge of the universe that Jesus says, Yes, I, I will turn around. And forget what I saw here. I'll focus my attention on the sacrifice that was paid by my only begotten son. See the connection there? Firstborn, sacrificed as a payment for our sins. How could anyone ever shake their fist at almighty God when he says, you know what? I came down as that sacrifice for your rescue. My hope and our, my prayer going into this week is that that would be something that motivates, that compels you towards gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, for providing that rescue and also compels us, man, I need to get the word out because there's a lot at stake here. This is a serious life and we do give an account to a perfect almighty God. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this section of scripture in this picture of the Passover. The whole idea that our sins can be forgiven is an amazing idea. May we never get numb to that. May that we never get callous to that reality. The sacrifice that was demanded in order for us to stand perfectly before you. God, I pray for anyone that's in earshot of this message. If they've never bent a knee, if they've had a a hardened heart, if they've resisted you for years and years, that this might even be the moment in time where they call out to you for rescue. Acknowledge their sin. Embrace your finished work on the cross as the perfect spotless lamb. I pray that that would happen even in in these moments as I'm praying. We pray this now in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Man, it's so good to be with you just studying God's word. Hopefully that's just a a nice meal for you to digest. I know it's a tough one, but it's also a a message of hope because we have a rescue in Jesus Christ. Don't forget if you are interested in connecting with a church service sometime soon, you can go online and get registered for that even now. Thanks so much. God bless you.